Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You may be seated. This morning, as we look at this psalm, as we are quickly approaching the end of our time in the psalms, we come to a psalm that I think is, it's very, it's very countercultural. And what I mean by that is the, the words of this psalm are, they stand in stark contrast to the way our world operates. The psalmist here, who is, who is indicated for us as Solomon, who was one of the wisest people to ever live, who was one of the wealthiest people to ever live, who had abundantly more than any of us could ever consider having, he writes this psalm, which seems to be the opposite of, of what he should write. It, it seems to be different than what we would expect to come from him. And yet I think it's very appropriate that he who, when God offered to give him anything, asked for wisdom, would sit down and pen these words for us. Because these words are so different than what we would expect a person of his standing and his wealth to write. This psalm, at its core, deals with the problem we have of pride. I would say that pride is one of the greatest challenges that humanity faces. As a matter of fact, pride is the foundation of all our sin. It was pride that said in the garden that we knew better than God. It was pride that took the words of the serpent when he said, if you eat this, you will not die. It was pride that accepted that as truth as opposed to what God has said. Pride, however, is extremely foolish. It, it has no good. Nothing can come from it. There is no good end that can ever come from pride. Every time we attempt to do something out of our pride, we will in the end fail. It may be that for a moment or for a season we have success in our pride, but in the end, the ultimate price of, punish, of, of pride is punishment and failure. We can't be successful in it. 
And so as we look at this psalm this morning, even though when we first read it, we may not come away from from it with an understanding that it is talking about pride, I want to encourage you that it is. Because these things that he talks about us doing in vain, we do in vain because of the pride that we have in believing that somehow we can know better and do better than God. Let's begin in verse 1. The psalmist says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. When he talks about house here, there are several different meanings that he may have in mind. And I I think it's very hard for us to nail down exactly which one, but I think they're all three very important. The first, he, he may simply be talking about a physical house. He may simply be talking about the work that we do. And the work that we do is foolish. It is done in vain, he tells us in verse 1, unless the Lord does it. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor and work do so in vain. If you have ever built a house, if you have ever undergone any type of construction project, you know that it is a tedious task. Simply getting through the red tape and regulations to do something like adding a roof onto a carport or adding a room onto your house takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. And if it's not done correctly, it may not show up immediately, but at some point you're going to see that the workmanship was not up to par. You're going to see that there were corners cut. You're going to see that there were shortcuts taken. It may be that one morning you wake up and you have found that your roof is leaking onto your bed. You may find out when part of the roof blows off or a wall falls in or an outlet that you have built into your house does not work. At some point, the poor workmanship will show up. But Solomon goes even further than that. He says that if it's built, and he doesn't say necessarily that it has to be built poorly, but rather if it is built and it is not built with the Lord doing it, then your work is for nothing. If we think about it, there are countless things that could have been plugged in here. Besides building a house, an endless number of professions could have been put in here. Whatever it is that we do, whatever our vocation is, whatever it is that God has called us to do with our life, if we do it without Him, we do so in vain. It doesn't matter if you are a a stalker at Walmart who works third shift pulling pallets out and putting things onto the shelves for us to come and buy, or if you are a heart surgeon who is operating in the most delicate place in the body, it doesn't really matter. From one profession to the other, if God does not build what it is we are doing, we do so in vain. There are a couple more options here that he may very well be talking about. The second is, he could be talking about God's house. Solomon was given the great responsibility of building a house for God. 
His father David had, want, had wanted to build the temple, but God had not allowed him to do so. Because of the sin in David's life, David was not allowed to build God's house. He was able to prepare. He was able to begin some preliminary things, but he was not able to build God's house. That responsibility fell to Solomon. And so Solomon would be the one who would build this great and magnificent structure that's set there as a testimony to the power of our God. A place where people could gather to worship. A place where God's presence would dwell and God would be sacrificed to. And so it may have been that in the building of this house, in the building of God's house, Solomon realized that it would take God to build it up. You and I need to understand that as we have been called to build on the church of God, to build on God's house, to build up His family, that we must do that Keep it in mind that God has to be in charge. As we work here in this family of faith that God has called together, we must understand that it is God who builds us up. It is God who works in our midst, and it, it cannot be us doing it on our own. Solomon was very aware of the fact that as he took this undertaking, as he built this house that God would dwell in, he would have to do so with God in mind. He would have to do so allowing God to build the house. Because if he did not, it would be in vain. If he did not, God would not be pleased with it. That's one of the things you and I should be very careful of as we build things in our life. Is God pleased with what we're doing? Is God pleased with what we're building? Solomon knew it was of the utmost importance when it came to his house. Thirdly here, another option that we have for this is our family. He talks about family in this text, and we'll talk about it later in verses 3 through 5, but he may very well here be talking about the household that we build, not the physical structure, but rather the house that we build as a family. These houses that we build. While they don't always work exactly right, while they have dysfunction, while they don't always look as pretty as we would like them to all the time, the fact of the matter is that God builds our homes. We cannot build that on our own. We cannot have success in building the house on our own, but rather God has to do that. We have to set Him up as the example for our family. We have to set Him up as the foundation for our homes. I think you can see that regardless of which of the three He is talking about here, they are all of vital importance. And we need to be mindful that in whatever we are building in our lives, God is building it for us. Because we find out very quickly that the things that we build on our own can go away in a moment. They can be taken away very, very quickly. And he begins to get at that notion in the second part of verse 1. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Why would a city have a watchman? 
Cities in this day are built with large walls around them. It would take a large wall to fend off an army that was coming to try to conquer you. And you would leave someone who would stay awake during the night. And he would sit there on the wall, and his responsibility was to sound the alarm if someone was coming. If an attack came, the watchman would be the first line of defense. He would be the one who could alert everyone that the attack was coming. He could sound the alarm, and the attack could be fended off. And yet here he writes very clearly this king who was king over a city with a large wall that would have had watchmen. He, he writes, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Solomon knew that it did not matter what kind of wall they had. It did not matter how many watchmen they had who were taking care of them. If God was not on their side, if God was not watching after their city, they could easily be conquered. It's almost a prophetic voice as he talks about something that is not that far off for the people of Israel as they are not that far off from being conquered because of their sin. He knows that God is ultimately in control of their security. You know, you and I strive for our own security. We watch over it day and night. We want to have security in our bank accounts and our jobs and our retirement plans. I think about over the last few months, I have... I've set up my phone to buzz me every morning with how much is in my bank account. And it's mostly because there's never a whole lot in there and I need to make sure I don't spend more than that in a day. Every Friday I get an email that tells me how much is in my retirement account. And I'm 29 years old. I can't touch it forever. I mean, it's forever out there. And yet every Friday, clockwork, they send me an email. You have this much in your account. And luckily, my memory's bad because as of late, it seems like it's less and less every Friday. But there's no security in that. I mean, think about it. My retirement is tied up in investments that are controlled by people in New York City who go to work every day, and their goal is to make as much money on that particular day as possible. And so they buy stocks and they sell stocks and they buy bonds and they sell bonds and they're trying to make a quick dollar. And I let them control my financial future. And most of you do the same thing. It's not very secure. And yet we worry about it all the time. We, we consider what moves we should make to be the most secure. And yet we need to realize that as watchful as our eyes are, we have no ability... No ability to keep ourselves secure. We have no ability to turn away a danger that is overwhelming. I think about just last week as people who serve in our military went to work. They went to work at the Navy Yard. They went to work at one of the most secure places that you could have. I mean, it's a military base in the capital of the most powerful country on earth. And yet many of them went to work and did not come home that evening because someone got a gun onto the, the Navy Yard and began to shoot them. If there's no security there, where is their security at? If, if we can have no comfort, no peace of mind at a place like that, where is there truly any security? 
There's not. It doesn't matter how many guns we have in our homes or how many alarm systems we have. In the end, there's no true security in life. You might be the safest driver. You might take the most precautions and find out this week that you have incurable cancer. There's no security in that. You can find no hope in that. There's there's nothing in this life to prevent that from happening. There's nothing you can do. You, You can't eat healthy and make that happen. You can't exercise all the time and make that happen. You can't make the best life decisions and keep all the bad things from happening. It's just not possible. And so he tells us if we try to do it on our own, if we put up watchmen, if we put up our own security, we're in the end going to find that we really have no hope. No hope on our own. No hope of making it on our own. Because friends, this morning our security is only found in Christ. There is no hope outside of Him. We know very well that you can work day and night. You can work your entire life. You can save. You can be frugal. You can be thrifty. You can be smart about it. And in the end, it does not matter. Everything can still be gone. There's no hope in the stock market. There's no hope in your bank account. There's no hope on your job. They can all go away very quickly. But, he says, if the Lord watches the city... The opposite of this must be true. If, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So that's telling us if the Lord watches over the city, then the watchman can stay awake and he does not do so in vain. The watchman can still be there. We can still be mindful of what's going on in our life. We can still be mindful of our security. We can still take care of our finances and be smart. But if the Lord is doing it, then it's not in vain. Then we actually have hope. Then we have a chance at Security. Our security is found in Christ. Friends, this morning the world is putting their hope in everything else. The world is putting their hope in the next bailout package that comes out of Washington. They're putting their hope in politicians. They're putting their hope in government. They're putting their hope in society. Friends, we must put our hope in Christ. That is the only place where security will be found always. Thirdly, and this is where, to me, this message begins to hit a little hard. One of the issues that we have pride with, on top of our work and on top of our security, is in our rest. Look in verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Our society sees a non-stop work ethic as a positive thing. Our society holds up the person who can work without stopping who can go and never rest. Friends, the Bible does not portray that as a positive character trait. The Bible does not portray it this way because it is not our laziness that requires rest. 
As a matter of fact, I would tell you that it's not the fact that we live in a fallen, sinful world where we break down and we grow old that requires rest. Because rest is something that God gives long before man ever sins. If we go back to the book of Genesis, we see that God rests on the seventh day. Six days He creates. Six days He makes everything that there is around us. He separates light and darkness. He creates the heavens and the earth. He makes every animal that there is. He gives us land and sea. But on the seventh day, God rested. He rested from His work. Why did He do that? Did God get tired? Was it a whole lot of work and so God got tired? If you look, He didn't do anything physical at creation. He spoke and everything that is was made. God was not tired and yet He rested. He rested to demonstrate to us that we do not have the ability to go nonstop and never quit. The world holds that up as a gift. If you are interviewing for a job in a company, that may be something they are looking for. But it is not something God is proud of. Jesus takes time away from everything that He is doing. Jesus was not sinful. Jesus could have had the ability to go on nonstop. He was God. He could have done what He needed to do. If He would have wanted to to never sleep, if he had wanted to keep going and never stop, he could have made his physical body do that, but he didn't. He rested. He rested as an example to you and I that we need rest. Look what he says here at the end of, of this verse, in verse 3. He says, or sorry, verse 2, For he gives to his beloved sleep. Man, that's a great line. I like sleeping. I love sleeping. It's great. I would do it 12, 15 hours a day if you could get anything done. Be perfect. The medicine they've had me on this week, I've been able to sleep 12, 15 hours a day. It's been wonderful. God gives it to us as a gift. He he gives it to us not because we are lazy. Not because we are weak, but He gives it to us because He loves us. If you think about the law under which Solomon would have been writing this, you were, there was no work on the Sabbath day. It was a day dedicated to God. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to Jesus' day, the Pharisees were so strict on keeping the Sabbath that they let you do almost nothing. They had put up laws on top of laws to keep you from working on the Sabbath. Jesus is accused of sinning because He heals on the Sabbath day. Now they were just legalists who were way, way overstepping what God had done. But look at the sentiment there. They wanted you to rest because God wants us to rest. Friends, if God has called us to rest, if He has called us to take time away from our labor, then overworking is sinful. 
I don't see it as a positive character trait. I realize that everybody has to work different amounts. Different people have different professions. But if you never take time to rest, God is not honored by that. It is not pleasing to Him. Because He created you in His image. And He rested. So if we take no time to rest, if we take no time to take advantage of what God has given us, then God's not pleased by that. And we need to be more mindful of that. Because our society tells us that we need to go all the time. We need to be involved in everything. We need to do everything for everybody. We need to always be available. We need to always be working. Friends, that's not a lifestyle pleasing to God. He uses the last three verses to talk about children. How interesting that he would throw that in. It doesn't seem to be what he has been talking about before, but he is talking about priorities. Because, see, what pride does is it ruins our priorities. So our priority is to build the house instead of letting God do it because maybe God takes longer than we want. Our priority is to have watchmen watch over our city and watch over our stuff and then be in charge when God wants us to do as He calls us to do. He wants to watch over our cities for us. Our our pride tells us to rise up early and work late and never rest and God tells us to do differently. So when He comes to verses 3-5, through we see him talk about children. Because the opposite of these things is to have a priority centered on our families. Children in our society have become dispensable. They have become irrelevant. It's pretty easy to see when we as a society abort hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of babies a year. It shows our low priority for children. And yet, here, he has a different view of children. He has a different view of what they mean. I want to read you something really quick from the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says this, in talking about this passage, He says, where society is rightly ordered, children are regarded not as an encumbrance, but as an inheritance. And they are received not with regret, but as a reward. Friends, I would say that our society has gotten away from that mindset. For most in our society now, children are an encumbrance and not an inheritance. They're a burden. They're a pain. And that's coming from me. Listen, I have four on the front row and two more in nursery. And many times, they are a pain. But more so than that, they are an inheritance. They are our inheritance from God. But our society does not see them that way. Many in our society receive them with regret, not with reward. And actually now that we're living more than 150 years after Charles Spurgeon, I would say that many of them are no longer even received. 
Why? Why would our society do that? Why would we begin to change our philosophy about children and how we should celebrate them? Is it not because the Lord has stopped building our houses? Is it because the Lord no longer watches over our cities? Is it because we rise early and go late eating bread of anxious toil? I would say that's exactly why He has included them here. That's exactly why we need to understand as a church these verses. Because our society has abandoned its love for children. We don't have time. We've got to work. We don't have time. We've got to earn I've met plenty of couples today who have no desire to have children until they have their entire life planned out. Let me promise you that's not going to happen. If you're here this morning and you are newly married and don't have children, let me encourage you with that. You will never get to a point where you're ready for kids. You can't plan for children. It's complete madness. It's utter chaos, and you can't get ready for it. So don't try. Just go ahead and have them. If you have them young, guess what? You'll still be young, and they'll be out of your house. See, some of you are celebrating that, because it's recently happened. It's by no error that I'll be in my 30s when several of my children graduate from high school. It's by no error that before I'm 50, they're going to be gone. Unless we have any accidents between now and then. It does not ring true in our society when we say children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. That doesn't ring true anymore. It doesn't ring true for our society. We see kids as a burden. Or some people see kids as a tool in which they can gain more things. You and I need to realize that God has blessed us with the children that we have. Whether you have them or not, if they are here in our church, you are a part of their life and a part of the responsibility of raising them. And God has given us them as a great blessing. Even when they get on our nerves. Even when they break stuff in our house even when they break arms and legs that cost us great amounts of money at the doctor's office, even when they do all of that, they're still a blessing. Think about this. These people who he talks about in verses 1 and 2, imagine working your whole life and accumulating great wealth. Imagine having all of these material things in the world, and then you get to the end of your life and you have no children. Guess what? The government gets it. If you look back at the story of Abraham, Abraham is lamenting because he has this stuff in the world and he has no heir to give it to. And he realizes that it's going to go to somebody else. And everything that he had worked for, everything that God had given him, he wasn't going to be able to pass on to his children because he didn't have one. The children that God has given us become a great blessing. A blessing from the Lord that we are able to pass on our love to, to pass on our care to, to pass on our love for the Lord to. And this is the opposite of today's idea. If we work hard and have kids later, then, then everything will work out. 
I saw a movie one time that depicted this, and, and all the people who are supposed to be the, the kind of the more dumb country folks, you know, they're having a bunch of kids because they didn't know better, but all the, the smart and intelligent folks, they weren't having any, and so they kept waiting and waiting, and finally the husband dies off, so they don't have any kids. And so basically the whole thing of the movie was that all the ignorant country people were going to rule the world, which doesn't sound too bad to me. I mean, it sounds like Burke County gets in charge, so that's, that's what we're looking for. It's what we want. But the problem was the longer we put this off, the longer we view children as a burden, the worse off things become in our society. Friends, it says in verse 5, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, who has a lot of children. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Think about this. You go back up to verse 1. You have a watchman watching over the city. You come to verse 5, and we see that this man who is who is blessed with children. When he goes up to meet his enemy at the gate, he goes up to talk with them, he goes up to um, confront his enemy, and there he is able to take all of his children. He's able to take them and he's able to show his force. He's able to see the enemy. The enemy is able to see his strength. It's better in verse 5 than having a watchman. Because here he has his family. They're invested in the city. They are, it's their city. It's where they live. And they're able to go and they're able to combat the enemy who is coming. He's not put to shame. But in verse 5 we're able to take away that he has victory. Because he has his children with him. Friends, you and I... We live in a society that has a huge problem with pride. We live in a society where it is very easy to put ourselves first, to put our priorities first, and to do our own thing. It has become easy to look after the things that are today and not look at the things that are ahead of us. We work hard. We work day and night. We try to put back for ourselves, and we give very little regard to what God wants us to do. And look what it's got us. Look what this mindset in our society, look where it's brought us to. I mean, look where our civilization is at in our country because we've adopted this mindset. We've been prideful and rebelled against God and we have, we, we work ourselves to death. We, we, invest, we invest in things that that don't really matter for eternity. We, we devote ourselves to things that aren't really important when it comes to what God wants for us. And we do so because we have we've tried to build houses without God building them. and We've tried to watch over cities without, without God. We've tried to do our own thing and build our own kingdoms. And trust me, it doesn't work. Isn't it interesting that, that in verse 2, the, the, the guy works day... He gets up early, he works late into the night, and even as he is eating, he said, eating the bread of anxious toil. You know what the guy's thinking about when he's sitting there eating? You know, he's worked morning to night, he's got this, this loaf of bread, and he's sitting down to eat it, and you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about going back to work. He's thinking about he needs to get back out there and, 
and earn another dollar. He needs to get back out there and sow another field. He needs to get back out there and buy something or sell something else. He was working, the anxious toil, he is working, thinking about working. I love what my dad always says. My, as you probably imagine, I have one of those jobs that you don't leave at work, especially when you live at work. But my dad always talks about his ability to come home when he punches out and he doesn't have to think about work and he doesn't have to talk about work till he gets back to work. And I've always wondered what that would be like because I imagine that for him, that's very freeing. He doesn't have to think about, okay, 6.30 is coming in the morning. I'm going to have to get back up. His body just, he doesn't even, he doesn't have to have an alarm. His body just wakes him up. He goes to work and when he punches out, he's done. It's a, it's a great thing. But this guy is working. And while he's working, he's thinking about work. And while he's eating, he's thinking about needing to go back to work. He is consumed with it. Friends, that's what our world does. That's what our world is. But that can't be us. For us, our priorities have to be the things of God. Our priorities need to be our families. Our priorities need to be spending time winning people to Jesus Christ. That is what our priorities are. Yes, we have to work because we have to live. We have to, to, to work to take care of our families. And we have to think about those things. And we have to worry about our future. We need to have something to retire on. We need to have money in the bank so that we can pay our bills and our commitments. But that can't be our primary focus. It must be on God. If we let God build our houses, if we let God watch over our cities, if we let God give us this beloved sleep, this needed rest. God will change our priorities. It will change the priorities of our family. It will change the priorities of our society. Friends, this morning, some of you may need to unload those burdens. Whether it is the burden of wrong priorities, whether it's the burden of overworking, whether it's the burden of, of, of false security, Maybe this morning you need to unload that. God. God wants to build our houses. God wants to watch over our city. God wants to give us rest and a blessed inheritance in our family. God desires to do that. Maybe you need to unload those burdens this morning. We bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God, you, God, you give us rest when we, when we have no peace. God, when we have no comfort. God, we, we're tempted constantly to, to carry our own burdens to go our own way, to do our own thing. We are tempted. And God, it's a, it's, a, it's a very beautiful temptation. God, it's a, a temptation that gives us false security and false hope. It's, it's attractive and appealing. But God, we know that it's sinful. And God, our desire 
is that you would remove our sin of pride that says we can do it on our own, that we can God, we can make our own way. God, we need to set that aside. God, I pray that you work in the hearts and the lives of the people here. That you you remove the burden of pride. And God, you give us the joy of your sufficiency. God, you give us the joy that comes in knowing that you carry our burdens and that if we carry yours, it's light and we can bear it. God, I thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. God, I praise you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Our praise team is going to sing a song and during that song, you are invited to respond. I want to share this with you. The temptation to to do and do and do, the temptation to have, is a temptation that we all feel. We all have ambition. We all want to see things happen. I think about my own life. I, at at 28 years old, earned my doctorate. You don't do that without having ambition and drive. You don't do that without putting in the work. You don't do that without making sacrifices that you never want to make again. We're all tempted with that. We all want to be more and do more. We all want to achieve and we all want to have. But as we do those things, we have to see where our focus is. Because if our focus is just to have, to have, if our focus is just doing so that we can get that achievement or receive that, uh, that pat on the back, it's not worth it. What would happen if our ambitions were focused on what we could do for God? If our drive was toward Him and what He has for us and what He wants for us? Imagine what that would do. Imagine what that would do in our lives. Would you respond this morning? Would you, would you bring those burdens that you have? Would you give them to God? Would you hand them over to Him this morning and, and say, God, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I, I give it to you. Would you respond as we sing?